Welcome to the lost episode of Magecast. All the way from the land where women glow and men plunder comes Patrick Arthur, my special guest for this episode. Podcaster from the Retrospectives podcast, video game critic and writer, Patrick has many insights to share on the subject at hand, the indie darling VVVVVV by Terry Cavanaugh. Don't worry if you haven't heard of the game or played it before. We here at MageCast are all about unpacking the discussion surrounding the story, the gameplay, the development, the culture, and the context for every game on our plate. Why, in-depth doesn't even begin to describe it. This is Season 2, after all. We know what we're about at this point. A few quick things to direct your attention toward. We just launched a new weekly series on the WellRedMage.com called Magepedia which explores the backgrounds of the names of our favorite video game characters and creatures. This coincides with the Characters That Define Us collab, happening at none other than NormalHappenings.com. I must also tell you about the Flash Sale happening at our Tee Public store January 14th through the 16th. Don't miss it, especially if you've been eyeballing some of our more popular or intricate designs. There's a link to our storefront in the podcast description. And finally, Our Patreon campaign has taken a couple of big hits over the past few months with patrons ending their pledges, but what I want to say first and foremost is thank you so much to all of our patrons, current and former, for supporting the Well-Read Mage and Magecast for so long. You can help us build the future of games writing and games discussion, bringing people together, crafting new content and new podcasts, by supporting independent reviewers like us. Visit patreon.com forward slash the Well-Read Mage to learn more. Thank you. Well, that's enough of that. Let's kick off our lost episode. Well, welcome to this episode of Magecast. I'm talking to a friend from Down Under today. Uh, this is somebody who I am, I've been trying to get on this show for quite a while, um, not because of any sort of begrudgingness on his part. <laughs> it's actually because of multiple... Um, rescheduling issues that I've had to foist on him uh, for which I highly apologize to um, to especially to our listeners who didn't get to hear from him on this show previously but uh, we're making up for that and you'll have a chance to hear from Patrick Arthur from the retrospectives podcast how are you doing today sir I am very well, thank you, Red. Uh, it's nine in the morning here, so uh, I've had a coffee. I'm all woken up. I'm ready to go. Thank you so much for having uh, me on your show today. Yeah, it's it's absolutely my pleasure. Like I said, um, I apologize for all the rescheduling uh, that we had to do. This is kind of like the um, the lost episode. Um, <laughs> you know, somebody asked. Yeah, because I. I put out, oh, we're gonna do, um, we're gonna do this episode, and here's the game we're gonna talk about. And uh, shortly after that, I decided that the show needed to take a break, and we kind of planned that we're gonna have the second season launch in January. Uh, but somebody asked, whatever happened to that episode? Um, so it's kind of like the lost episode, but um, we're doing it now. We're releasing it from the vault. Well, so. I'm glad. Uh, I'm glad it wasn't truly lost because uh, this is. Uh the game we're doing for this episode is one that I've been keen to talk about for a very long time, and it's a sort of game that, if anyone gets an earshot of me, I'll talk. Uh, I'll talk that ear off about the brilliance of this uh, indie title. Very cool. And in talking with you before 
this recording started, I definitely got the gist that you're somebody that uh, knows and understands this game. This isn't just, oh, yeah, I like it, end of podcast. But you kind of have a sense of, of, uh, of deep working knowledge about uh, what this game is, what it's about, and the context of the other games um, by the same creator. So, um, so that we get kind of a little more uh, info about you, um, what are you playing right now? And uh, maybe what are some of the things that you're working on? So recently, uh, you know, it's the holiday break. So uh, normally what I do, I'm a podcaster myself. Uh, each and every fortnight, my co-host and I, we play through a classic game of the past. And then we have a deep dive review discussion of that title. Kind of like visiting these classics to see if they've truly stood the test of time. And then we do a podcast episode talking about it. And we often get into a lot of arguments but I haven't been doing that recently because we decided to take a uh, a break for the um, for the for Christmas holidays. So I've been playing through something called Doom: The Plutonia Experiment. So Doom Classic, I'm sure everyone knows. Uh, I've played through Doom One and Two before, but Doom: The Plutonia Experiment is like on a whole new level of challenge. With Doom and Doom Two, I can pretty much do a save at the beginning of each level and get through it pretty easily but this new game is hard as nails it's kicking my ass but but i'm really uh i'm really enjoying the experience wow and that is quite a mouthful for a title too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah it is it's it's not like uh it's not like doom one or doom two it's uh it's uh it take takes quite a while just to explain what it is and so, uh, when are you planning to end the break on your on your podcast here? Do you have a, a plan for relaunching? We do. So uh, next Monday, when we launch our next episode, we're doing our game of the year episode. So we played twenty five different uh, classic games from like the nineties to the early two thousand last year. So we're going to be going over all the best and worst aspects of all of the games we played. So we'll have a category for best graphics will have a category for best gameplay and also worst graphics and worst gameplay they tend to be the more entertaining categories but uh the fortnight after that we're back in action and we're doing a game called i can never say it. it's like katamari damacy it's oh this, yeah yeah it's uh <laughs> it's not game. the game i chose i'd never heard of it but it looks weird as hell like it looks like you're just rolling up objects until and you just keep getting bigger and bigger and bigger so did you did you play it at all yet? No. So um, oh, okay. the format we do for the pod is uh, James and I. James is my co-host. We mm -hmm. uh, alternate the games we select because we have quite a different taste in video games. I tend mm -hmm. to pick first-person shooters and RTS games and kind of more PC-based title, whereas mm -hmm. James loves his Japanese games and his bloody bizarre obscure games. So. <laughs> I know about this game from its reputation, but I've never actually sat down and played it before. Uh, it doesn't get much more Japanese than Katamari Damacy. <laughs> uh, well, I hope you enjoy it. That's that's a game that I, I enjoy quite a bit. Um, it's one that you really enjoy the first time through because mm -hmm. it's just so bizarre. Uh, and then after a while, you know, the, the sequels and things like that, they don't hold up to that first shock of Katamari Damacy. Right. So. It's about the novelty value. Yeah, I won't. I won't say much more because it is. Okay. It's a very strange and amazing <laughs> game. It's so unique. Um, but speaking of unique games, 
Today we're going to be talking about this game. <laughs> so far, I've <laughs> kind of game. avoided saying <laughs> the title, right? Uh, so uh, the title is six letter V's, V V V V V V, which was released in 2011 for Windows PC and Mac OS. Eventually ported to several systems, and it was developed by indie developer Terry Cavanaugh. Uh, this is episode 39. This is the sound a hovercraft makes. A couple of mage facts before we get into discussing the game proper. Uh, it's important to note, I think, that uh, this game, <laughs> this game, <laughs> that, uh, that, and we'll get into just here in a, in a few minutes. We'll, we'll get into pronouncing uh, the game title. But it's interesting to note that it was inspired by the Commodore 64 and not by uh, the um, NES or, you know, the Super Nintendo or the Genesis, which I think occupy, I think, occupy a large range of inspirations for uh, a lot of indie games mm -hmm. that we see. I think a lot of pixel art indie games are definitely inspired by um, the three systems that I mentioned, but Commodore 64 um, is one that it's interesting when you see this kind of dynamic, this visual, this aesthetic that's still minimalistic, um, but it doesn't look like it belonged to the NES because it didn't. It belonged to the C64. But it reminds me of this game, uh, Deep Ones, that I played a while back that definitely uh, still has that, that pixel art and the minimalism but was not, obviously, by the look of it, was not inspired by the NES Super Nintendo Genesis, those big hitters of the 8-bit and 16-bit eras. Um, it was inspired by the ZX Spectrum, which mm -hmm. is something I've never played. Apparently, it was very popular in Europe. But um, all that to say, there are indie games out there which decide to go off the beaten path and um, take their inspirations from a variety of... Uh, perhaps more obscure, let's say that uh, systems. Yeah, I'd say that um, the main the main difference is that the, the it seemed Commodore, the Commodore sixty four was more of a computer as opposed to a video game console. Mm -hmm. uh, at, at least that's how I see it. So instead of being restricted on, I, instead of this the sort of details uh, pixel art that you see in the NES and SNES games. You kind of have these chunkier, blockier characters, but it's more obviously designed for a larger screen. It seems like you're getting a lot more eye space, but you're getting less colors and less visual uh, vividness than you get mm -hmm. from those NES titles. Completely agree. Uh, very well said. Now, there is a particular uh, Commodore 64 game that served as inspiration for this game. Is that mm -hmm. correct? Yeah, so... So I should clarify that I basically only have vague and fuzzy memories of the Commodore 64 myself. My dad did own a Commodore 64 and I kind of, yeah, I kind of have weird images in my head of seeing the screen, but really it was when I was like two or three years old. So I don't <laughs> have, I don't have a clear memory of ever playing these games, for example, but there is one game which it seems like VVVVV takes clear inspiration from it. It's a game called Jet Set Willy. And if you just do a screen-to-screen -screen comparison, 
there are things like the enemy sprites and in particular the room names that feel like they're ripped straight from Jet Set Willy uh, with with uh, with its own twist, of course. But uh, yeah, if you had to name one visual inspiration, I think Jet Set Willy is the one. Yeah, I'm looking at it now. Uh, that definitely seems like an appropriate, um, an appropriate comparison to to mention uh, inspirations here. I note that there's even uh, six uh, six little human shapes of different colors here, and so mm-hmm. that might be a parallel there as well. Um, I don't know. I've I don't think I've ever heard of Jet Set Willy before um, we began putting together this podcast. Um, <laughs> But uh, I do have sort of the same experience with C64. It's the first thing I remember playing video games on, um, Mm -hmm. but I really don't remember the names of them. Uh, My dad and my dad's friend uh, each had one, so I played it uh, a bit, but uh, it's all just images that I don't have names and things attached to. Uh, But there is kind of the big question, the elephant in the room, so that we can do the rest of this podcast without saying <laughs> that game, this game. Uh, we got a question here from Adventure Rules. How do you say the title of this game? That is the big question. Uh, pronunciation is a sticking point with this game. And actually, we pulled Twitter to see how different people pronounced it. But before we get into some of the, I think, hilarious uh, responses that we got, um, how do you personally pronounce this game? So, uh, firstly, it's a lot easier to uh, to actually type out than uh, than say. <laughs> so, if if I'm talking to someone while chatting, I'll type out v v v v v v. But when it comes to speaking about it, I just tend to give it its due, you know, the respect it deserves by saying the full name out loud once. But then I'll just start calling it V because it's nice and easy, and there's no other game that sounds like V. So it's a unique enough shortcut name, I think. I think so. Um, my wife was uh, was somebody who watched me play through this game uh, with great interest. We don't have too much time to play video games together these days. Um, mm-hmm. But um, it's a game that her and I both know by V. But <laughs> you can't exactly say that to uh, <laughs> you can't uh, exactly say that to people and expect them to know that. That's so much I, better. Yeah. So I typically say, uh, you know, V V V V V V. Um, but V is, I think, just the easiest way to do it for sure. Um, <laughs> so let's take to Twitter, Twitter here. There's a to, to Twitter. Let's take to Twitter here. A couple, uh, couple of interesting responses. Duct tape plays. V, 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 way more Vs than necessary, as I can never remember how many there are without looking. I had to remember <laughs> there's six. <laughs> There's I thought there was five for a very long time. I think saying five Vs rolls off the tongue more naturally than six Vs. Yeah. Um, I I know I had to look. I was like, how many Vs are in this? Uh, very next one here, Umbral Ice, he, he said V6. Um, Black Mage Felix 2, that game with all of the Vs, that, that works. <laughs> uh, Backlog Odyssey. Uh, VV, 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 referencing the Black Mage character from Final Fantasy IX. Uh, one long and loud V sound, then I fly around the room pretending I'm a bee. Mr. <laughs> Thou. <laughs> I love that from Mr. Thou. Uh, I was cracking up at these. Um, this is from the Deviat, who we had on a previous episode. The mm-hmm. official way, as far as I know, is the letter V six times, quote, unquote. 
um, Kirk Arcade W3, <laughs> um, all the V's, Blaze Knight 0923, Spikes, Seabird Tweets. That's a great, uh, I, great one. I do like that answer because I think that um, that gets to the heart of the matter of why he called it V in the first place. Yes. Um, it's, you know, it's, it's evocative of Spikes. I think of teeth sometimes mm-hmm. when I look at it. Um, it's interesting that it's a title that kind of evokes uh, the game's settings in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is from Cat Neutrality. I feel like it sounds like a weird hiss. <laughs> uh, we got spikes again, spikes, spikes, like a B buzz. The letter V six times from Teacher Bloke 85. The V game, Sierran Song 30, Alpha Lackey. Yeah, there's a lot of responses here. Okay. There really are, aren't yeah. there? Uh, TTFTD just said V times six or 6v so people have uh have um an interesting time trying to um say this one that was terry kavanaugh's plan all along to uh to generate publicity by giving it a ridiculous name yeah it's sort of a brilliant move isn't it Uh, (laughs) he said in an interview himself that he just calls it v so like we'll take that as that's the that's the authorial name Certainly uh, makes it easier to talk about today. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, so another interesting fact here, the soundtrack. <laughs> the soundtrack is called PPPPPP. <laughs> <laughs> which sounds much worse than VVVVVVV. Um, or you could say... <laughs> but it's not quite the same thing. And then there's also a power metal version of the soundtrack. M M M M M M or mmm, which fits a metal version, I think, (laughs) a luxurious Mm. metal version. It's um so the the soundtrack is composed by a guy called uh, Magnus Palson, who's AKA Soli, and one of the cool things about the soundtrack, uh, which is called P P P P P P P, is that each and every song in the soundtrack uh, starts with the letter P. Ah, the the title of the yes. of each track. That's interesting. Yes. I'm gonna have to go back and and uh, listen to the entire thing today. I just listened to a couple clips from it, and it's such an enjoyable soundtrack. I think. I I love the soundtrack. I'm I'm sure we'll get back in more into it later. But uh, yeah, what one of those soundtracks you can listen from start to finish, uh, whenever you feel like it, and uh, it's very enjoyable. And I think that's something um that's. It definitely needs to be said about this game that um, it has, in some ways, it has what you'd expect from a pixel uh, indie uh, as far as the music goes. But mm. at the same time, I think it does that particular sound, the synthetic sound, the electronic sound, um, really well and in interesting ways. And not at all in ways that are sort of jarring or irritating. Um, mm. I've heard uh, there was a. a a while when I went on an indie kick and that was all I played. Um, and it's interesting to me, maybe you'll have particular thoughts on this. Mm-hmm. Maybe not. This is kind of just pulling it out of the air. Uh, it's interesting to me that indies kind of started as, as you know, the independent uh, movement of game design. And there was a heavy emphasis on uniqueness and on uh, pursuing avenues in game design that uh 
bigger studios that were limited by an interesting thought limited by budget limited by having to do things that were sort of the tried and true methods um and so indies were you know were unique but i think over time what we've seen uh over say the 2010s alone is the development of trends within the indie scene itself so that you so that what started off as sort of this off the beaten path movement uh eventually developed its own categories uh, and subcategories and sub subcategories that people were designing within um one thing that i i think is really interesting uh in in indies is when you play something that doesn't feel like something that you've played before uh that has still that element of uniqueness even though perhaps there are things that are uh somewhat familiar but i, I don't know do you have any thoughts on that on indie trends Basically, I completely agree with you. I think that's a really astute observation about the industry because the indie scene, as you said, it used to just be new and weird ideas, but the indie scene has become a lot more professional over the last 20 years. Mm -hmm. I still do think there are unique indie games coming out every single year mm -hmm. it's just that there are so many indie games and so many different types of indie games indie games that cash in on nostalgia indie games that are small tweaks to um to old games that haven't picked up a publisher that it's becoming increasingly difficult to find those indie games that really try something weird that really mm -hmm. kind of make you uncomfortable with the direction that the gameplay has gone in. It's not that they don't exist. It's just that there's a discoverability problem at the moment with, with the new and weird games that I don't think existed back in 2011 when V did come out. Hmm. That, yeah, that's very true. Um, it's, uh, it's interesting that, you know, in recent years we've seen indies uh, being nominated for game of the year at game awards uh mm -hmm. celeste i believe it was um you know right alongside huge names um from big huge studios with tons of money um so it's fascinating to see that that's possible that these incredible one of the things that i really love about indies is uh the fact that I, they're usually more focused and more personality driven um, mm -hmm. because they're not made by such a, a vast amount of people and a large studio. And they're um, not trying to appeal to everyone. They're not trying to appeal right. to a mass demographic. They've got an right. audience that they're trying to hit. Exactly. Um, that's sort of, that's the responsibility of the AAA game. It has to be able, I mean, if you're paying real actors to mm -hmm. do motion capture, that's kind of, that's going to cost a ton of money, a ton of money. And how is the game going to make up that money? It has to be able to appeal to as many people as possible. And what mm. you see with indies and what I've seen in talking about indies is there are a lot of people that are like, no, it's not really for me. But that's sort of the indie thing then, isn't it, though? Uh, indies kind of have that smaller appeal, um, and there's so many of them, like you said. It's, yeah, just, it's Just picking out a couple of random ones out of my hat, which I think preserve the original spirit of indie games um a big one was return of the obra din i don't know if you've heard of that game yeah it's like a elaborate sudoku puzzle as you investigate um a, you know you investigate a story you investigate a mystery of what went down on this 
deserted ship that's been missing for nine months. And when I played that game, I was just like, I have literally never played anything like this before from the visuals to the gameplay to the atmosphere. And so I think they still exist. It's just, yeah, it, they're becoming they're becoming rarer. Indie games is no longer synonymous with that sort of experience. We'll need indie indie games pretty soon. <laughs> <laughs> what are some of your favorite uh, indie games, though? Maybe you have kind of three. You mentioned one. There. Oh man, there are so many. Like I, I've increasingly turned to indie games as time has gone on. So I'll I'll pick I'll just pick three at random. Three sure. that I loved. My favorite game from last year, full stop, is The Outer Wilds, which mm-hmm. is like, I don't know if you've heard of it, but it's like this exploratory Metroidvania where instead of getting upgrades to help you navigate obstacles and reach new areas, uh, new, new areas are unlocked by your knowledge of this universe. It also implements this wonderful Groundhog Day device where... Uh, the galaxy that you're in explodes every 22 minutes uh, and then you get reset back to the start of the time loop. I don't want to spoil anything more than that because the joy of the game is in experiencing it, but Mm. for someone who loves exploration in video games, that game was fantastic. It really blew me away. Wow, I have Uh, to check that out. uh, it It is wonderful. Like, There was some stiff competition for Game of the Year last year, but for me that one was head and shoulders above the pack. Uh, another one I'd nominate, I think that as an indie game that, you know, the, the FPS genre is very dominated by your call of duties and your battlefields Mm -hmm. nowadays, but there was a FPS game that came out a couple of years ago called Dusk and Dusk is kind of like heavily inspired by Quake. It's like a fast paced FPS where your positioning is of utmost importance and that game is better than the classic FPSs of the past. It's a modern-day masterpiece. And I'm, I'm shocked that it's taken 20 years to get an experience so similar to those games that are 20 years old but has evolved on it and presented a superior gaming experience. So, mm. man, I, I could go on all day about indie games, so I'd better stop <laughs> there. But, but there, are, there are many indie games out there that are good. I just think it's harder to find them. Yeah. It's um, perhaps something that could help with sort of identifying which indie games um, are going to come out on top as history goes on is um, seeing how far they spread across different systems and get picked up uh, for promotion and, 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 and being featured by the big companies. So um, one that I'm thinking of, uh, that kind of blows my mind every time I play it, and I play it quite a bit. Uh, mm. Blows my mind that it's in India, is Stardew Valley. Uh, Stardew Valley is everywhere. Like, of course. I just saw that they're, they're. I think they're putting it in Tesla now. I was like, <laughs> that's kind of ridiculous. <laughs> that's insane. Yeah, but, I mean, Stardew Valley obviously inspired by Harvest Moon. Oh which yeah. Was was that originally a um, a handheld title? No, it was originally uh, first Harvest Moon was on Super Nintendo, uh, but there right, were it's a wealth old. of handheld Harvest Moons. Oh my god, I, I yeah. didn't even realize they're, they're not really my sort of games. But yeah. I got to respect the um, the depth of the gameplay experience there. Yeah, uh, that's one that I can get addicted to. And again, I'm like, this is an indie. 
(laughs) (laughs) This is practically, I mean, some indies are so, you know, well-designed and so big, they feel like maybe double A's if you're going to start coining other phrases. Double A's. Yeah. (laughs) Now we're just getting We're moving up the battery scale, are we? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) The quadruple A. Um, (laughs) Another couple of indies I want to give a shout out to is Moonlighter Mm. uh, was quite good. Uh, Hyperlight Drifter, I will mention until the day I die. Wonderful uh, game. Loved that game. Undertale is is another. It's so big, so huge. Oh, like, this is not a AAA game. This is an indie. That's kind of mind-blowing. Uh, Undertale is one of those games where it's like everyone knows it's great, but I think that in a lot of ways the size of the fan community kind of undersells just how good the game is. Like mm, That's an is, interesting statement, yes. Well, well the, the, the thing is, you know, I think that a lot of Undertale's brilliance has been I'm not I won't say ruined by the fan community, but I think that some people are put off by the intensity of the fan community. Their absolute no holds barred adoration for this game. <laughs> yes. Uh, as opposed to I, the reason why it's so interesting that you're saying that, I didn't play Undertale when it released. I played it several years later. And the yeah. reason why I did that was because of the massive amount of you know concept Hi. art and everything that i was just seeing about this i was like do i even really want to play this yeah it's it's funny how it can work in reverse whereas mm-hmm. if it was a more quiet understated appreciation i think that i think that there'd be more i don't know more critical love for this game almost yeah. because the thing is undertale to me is a masterpiece of of design like uh-huh. in every aspect it's 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 absolutely brilliant but mm-hmm. it's yeah it's it's overhyped by its fan community it's a funny funny sort of paradox yeah um to me when i i think about this um i think about all of the extraneous things that aren't really a part of this game um you know, the fan fiction and the shipping and things like that, that uh, kind of playing the game for myself, I realized, okay, this game really isn't even about all of these things that sort of like a culture is it mm. probably a good term to use. A culture has risen up around this game uh, and it's difficult to kind of pierce through that and see what are like, what are, what's this, this game's actual merits um hmm. what are its actual flaws you know if it has any uh so i played it but i didn't review it uh, i couldn't review it um i wanted to sit on it and kind of think about it for a while and, and i just ended up passing on on reviewing it i think for me it was just too intimidating to um start to look at um all the things critically that need to be looked at for this game. Maybe mm-hmm. should, that that sounds a little strange, but I think no, 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 completely agree with you. There's um, there's a sense of in order to properly review this game, I need to understand the context in which it exists, and that context can be very intimidating. Coming as an outsider who hasn't you know been in contact with the community as it evolved mm-hmm. into what it currently is. I think it's the sort of game that five years down the track, when the dust settles, it'll be a really interesting game to revisit. Mm-hmm. But right now, it's I'm I'm the same as you. I don't even know how to begin talking about Undertale. Hmm. Fascinating. I it kind of hinges on something that we mentioned in the previous episode of Wand of Gamelon, of all things, um, that criticism perhaps has to have time to. Uh, I think germinate was the phrase I used. Uh, it has to have time to kind of soak in 
uh, take root and evolve. And I would love to hear more critical discussion about Undertale. Its characters are wonderful. Its world is is fantastic. Uh, its its story is fabulous. Um, but I want to hear more about you know these critical things about what makes this game truly great. The subtlety, uh, like you mentioned earlier. But um, to go back to to the <laughs> the game at hand, a V. Of course, yes. <laughs> um, it, it's kind of hinges in. It's it's great though. Um, there's a question here from Crits McCrits. Who said, I have no knowledge of this one. So my question is, what elevates this title above others that share its genre? Um, now, obviously, he's kind of a, an anti-grav platformer. But I think to state it more broadly, um, it's appropriate that we've been talking about a couple of great indies here. I think V is a great indie. But in your view, what elevates it um, above a lot of other indies, considering there are so many? Man, I guess there's two questions there. It's like, what elevates it above other indies? And also, what elevates it above other indies in its specific genre? Uh So, if I had to say, like, what elevates V as an indie in general, I would say it's... uh, I don't know, man. it's, It's sense of adventure and presentation, I think, is what elevates it above other indies. It's a joyous experience to play. Mm -hmm. But if I had to narrow it down to what elevates it in its genre, it would be more gameplay related. Because Mm -hmm. I guess your two major comparison points for this sort of game, the ones I would nominate anyway, would be Super Meat Boy, which Mm -hmm. released in 2010, uh, which was before V was released. And then later on Celeste, which is a far more modern game, but I think still carries a lot of the same DNA Mm -hmm. because the thing that makes these three games similar is their sense of challenge, the number of times you die, because you die a lot playing all these games, Mm -hmm. and the way it, upon each death, you immediately get reset to the start and are able to go again. Like, it's it's a real sense of death is not an obstacle. It's There's a real immediacy to the gameplay experience. That makes a lot of sense. Um, I think that, too, when you're going to talk about games like this, especially in kind of the minimalist region, um, mm. you're definitely discussing uh, gameplay. Uh, I think that that's a primary driver for the mm. indie scene in particular. But what was the first time you played V? So the very first time I played V was shortly after its release. Um, I mentioned before that I think that there's a discoverability problem with video games at the moment. Mm-hmm. It used to be on Steam back in 2011 that the most number of games that would get released on a given day would be one. And you would often go multiple days without a new game being released on Steam. So it was a very common process to go on Steam, look at the upcoming titles, and then when when you saw that a new release had happened, you would investigate it. Nowadays, it seems like there are 20 day games dropping on Steam uh, every single day, many of which are completely irrelevant to most people's interests without going into too much detail. But back then, I used to go on the Steam store, saw, see what was dropping, and then look into it. And that's what happened with V. I was on the Steam store. I was looking through new titles. I was like, this game looks cool. And back in 2011, I played through V for the very first time. Wow. So 
uh, I didn't play it until much later. Hmm. Um, but I was looking up the numbers here. I actually uh, did this bit of research once. I think I mentioned this once on the show before, but it was a while back, so hopefully people forgot this story. Uh, I asked the question once, is game quality improving? And I approached that answer through the lens of averages, uh, the total amounts of games being released uh, then and now and throughout the years on different platforms. Uh, something that I found is, yeah, in 2017, uh, 7,672 games were released on Steam. In 2016, 4,207 games came out on Steam. Year before that was about half. Year before that was about half. Um, so what we're actually seeing on Steam is uh, almost a, a, an, in, a doubling increase on how many games are released. Now, that's just Steam, and that's bearing in hmm. mind the fact that these this is, uh, what is it, cumulative, right? So these we're still having these games that are appearing on Steam, they stay there. So the library just keeps growing exponentially. Now, uh, a really interesting fact that I saw is uh, a report in 2014 showed that nearly 37% of Steam's then 781 million registered games had never even been played. Oh, my God. Only, that much? Yeah. 37%. This is in 2014. So I wonder what it is now if somebody had the time to do the research. That'd be interesting to see. Uh, but in 2014, 37% of Steam's then 781 million games hadn't been played. Uh, and that's not even considering the mobile market. Uh, apparently, on average... More than 500 games are submitted to the iOS App Store every day. And that number comes from, uh, uh, looks like a stat pulled in 2016. I'll drop a link to this article in the podcast description. But all that to say, I think the numbers definitely back up what you've been saying here mm -hmm. uh, in that there are just so many games to sift through and how do you find the really good ones? So VVV, I'm just gonna say V, can't, can't remember <laughs> how many times V. Uh, so V is one of those that is amazing, I think. But I didn't discover it, well for one, I'm not on Steam. I can't be on Steam. Uh, I would never leave my house if, <laughs> if I was on Steam. There's two, it's, yeah, there's like Steam sales that pop up now and then. You guys know if you're listening, you're like, you're all about those Steam sales. I know it. Uh, Steam sale pops up and they're like, yeah, they're giving away games for a nickel. And it was like, I, I can't. I, I couldn't. I can't possibly. I will bankrupt myself buying thousands of games. There's people on Steam that have like 20,000 20, games. Um, and they're like, yeah, but I, cause I got a, I had to buy like a hundred to get the one game that I wanted. I was like, yeah, but that's nuts. That economy is nuts. That's insane to me as a console player. That's, that's insane to me. So uh, I didn't discover V until it was ported to a uh, Nintendo switch. And that mm -hmm. wasn't done. I think until 2017. So what a fantastic game for the switch. That must've been a great experience. Yeah. Um, you know, it's kind of a, a a cliche joke at this point to say, oh, it's perfect for Nintendo Switch. But it is, right? It uh, really is. It's a game that you could pick up and put down uh, and play in short sessions. And I think that 
that brevity of its gameplay experience uh, is something that's that's really well highlighted by the Switch. So yeah, and and the gameplay has a real simplicity to it. Like uh, most platformers have jumps or runs or you know something something to keep keep the platforming flowing smoothly. Uh, v has exactly uh, has exactly three three keys. You can go left, you can go right, and you can flip gravity and go flying to the other side of the screen, and that's it. It's a three button game. Yes, so it's it's a and I want to pull more out of this from you because this mm. is one of the things that really makes V unique. It is a platformer without jumping, mm. right? So it's, it's an uh, anti gravity platformer. Yeah, no, it's a it's a it's fascinating how unique this concept is. I think that it's been used in bits and pieces of various games over the years, but I don't think any game has used it as the central conceit like V has. And I don't think any game has done it anywhere near as well as V. The idea that with the flip of a button, you go sailing to the roof, and then with the same press of the button, you go down to the floor. There's no cooldown on it or anything. Uh, that's the way you navigate V's world. Hmm. And I think that uh, one of the best design elements of V is the fact that uh, the controls are so tight because there are there are settings in the game when you have to flip in midair right so it's not just get, get, getting that in your head if you've never played this game before and you're listening it's not just that you have to flip to the roof then back to the ground then back to the roof then back to the ground to sort of navigate obstacles and things like that there are sections in this game that are quite hard to pull off because you've got to kind of maintain uh this this uh momentum in midair uh, while sort of switching gravity back and forth, back and forth, and back and forth um, to be able to move around obstacles and all this sort of thing. And it's just a fascinating thing that could not have been pulled off were the controls clumsier, I think. Absolutely. The controls are absolutely tight, which for me anyway is essential for a positive platforming experience. If my platformer doesn't have perfect controls... I have literally zero interest in it. I don't care what else it brings to the table. A platformer <laughs> needs tight controls. And V's controls are wonderfully tight. Um, like you said, you have to do so much mid-air maneuvering that uh, having the tightness of the controls is essential. Yes. And I love that there are, and we'll kind of get into rooms here for a bit, I think. But I love mm -hmm. that there are sections in the game where you don't quite know what to expect should you flip the gravity on yourself uh you don't quite know what what is either beneath you or above you because bearing in mind that this game has uh what are called rooms and that's each screen it, that you move between kind of reminds me of the original Le legend of zelda where you move from one screen to another by reaching the edge of that screen and moving into the next so that you can't see what's directly above you, and you're kind of exploring and filling out this map. But sometimes that means instant death. Sometimes that means you fall for a very, very, very long time. Uh, and yet, at the same time, there are other rooms where you walk in, and for me, I, w I would walk into some of the more elaborate rooms and just stop and look. <laughs> and be like, what am I supposed to do here? There's yeah, a there's laser some... grid and spikes and all sorts of projectiles. Yeah. 
It gets nuts. Yeah, there's a, there's a divide in V between, I guess you'd call them the challenge rooms or the platforming rooms and the open world. Because, you know, the setting of this game is like a space station, but it's all wonky and distorted by physics. Mm -hmm. In the open world when you're exploring, like you said, you might flip gravity and you'll be falling for 10 screens as you uh, see bits of scenery, uh, you know, fall past you. Uh, But the challenge rooms, each and every time you step into a new room, it's like a delight for the senses. It's like a real treat. You don't know what's coming up. And every time you stop and you're like, wow, it's it's different every time. Hmm. Absolutely. And so with rooms here, um, the it's interesting that uh, each room or each screen uh, has its own name that displays as you're playing the game. I thought that was one of the most endearing features about this. Yeah, no, it's really cool. So um, what actually happened was Terry Kavanaugh designed his game. Uh, He did all the rooms and then he got his friend, a guy called Bennett Foddy. And uh, you might not have heard the name, but he's the guy who developed Quop, that terrible flash game from, you know, a million years ago. And then far more famously now, uh, getting over it. And he said, all right, Bennett, I want you to name my rooms for me. So Bennett went through every single room in this game, and there must be like I, I would guess two hundred and fifty of them, or at least two hundred. There's, and he got Bennett to name every single one. And the really cool thing about all these room names is that they're all kind of jokes, like they're fourth wall breaking jokes, or they're references to obscure TV shows, or they're meta jokes, or. Every room name, in the same way that every time you walk into a room, you're given like a a new shock of uh, interesting things happening on your screen. Every room name has its own sense of satisfaction from uh, from reading it and uh, reading about how the room is themed. Absolutely. Uh, what are some of your favorites? Favorite rooms? So, so I did have um, I did have a few written down here. So. I think my favorite is the one called The Warning. So uh, V has a very generous checkpointing system. There's a checkpoint in pretty much every single room in this game, which means that although you die frequently trying to get through the platforming challenges, you immediately reset and you're ready to go in again. The Warning is a single corridor and it's filled with 15 checkpoints. So you just kind of run over these checkpoints and they all light up. And uh, The Warning is uh, the room right before the most famously difficult challenge in the game, which is Vinny Vidi Vicky. And the reason I love it so much is because who hasn't played a video game where you get to that point where the game gives you a bunch of powerful weapons and it gives you a save point and you just know, you just know (laughs) from the bottom of your heart that uh, a boss fight is coming up. And uh, the warning perfectly encapsulates that. 15 checkpoints doesn't actually do anything. It's exactly the same as one checkpoint. But they put 15 checkpoints in there just to show you that something scary was coming up. (laughs) That reminds me of uh, sort of the final area in this. I like that it was... uh, Was it named V and then VV and then VVV? Was it ascending in the number of Vs that appeared? I think as we were falling upward or something like that. Yes. And that's right. Yeah, and the um the area you're falling out is like is is in the shape of a V. So as you 
as you go up, the V gets larger and larger <laughs> because each and every screen is a V. Yeah. It's very clever. It is, it is so clever. It's, it's one of those things that attaches meaning to visuals in such a unique way. Um, definitely, definitely interesting. Uh, did you have any if, other? If I had to, oh, go ahead. Oh yeah, sorry. I, I was, I'll just nominate one more, sure. and um, that's that's the one. It's kind of like two rooms. So the first room is called Get Ready to Bounce, uh, and what happens is you reach this new area that has a different aesthetic to everywhere else in the room. A new music track starts playing, and um, you drop off a uh, platform and fall down into the next screen. And as you fall, you realize you're in a room absolutely covered in spikes and you're going to fall right into them. <laughs> but instead, you hit a thin line and you bounce back up because the mechanic in this area are these kind of like bouncy trampolines that uh, when you hit them, you kind of hug the trampoline for a second before shooting off in the opposite direction. And the name of that next room is It's Perfectly Safe. <laughs> so you get you get ready to bounce, but you don't know what that means. You go down, you're like, well, I'm going to die before you just go, bop, and you go back up the top wondering what's going on. Yes, and, <laughs> and uh, great example of the, the room titles informing the player. So they're not just cutesy kind of bits of text there, but they... I remember entering that room and be like, oh, you get ready? Whoa, whoa, whoa. And, you know, it kind of tells you, okay, this is what's going on. Hmm. Did, did you have any favorites? I did. Um, Philadelphia Experiment, I thought was an interesting reference. Um, Green Dudes Can't Flip, I thought was a funny name. Uh, <laughs> try Jiggling the Antenna <laughs> was another uh, funny one, I thought. Um, yeah, that one's great because what you do is you jiggle back and forth between the... Uh, between the trampolines on that one. Yeah, perfect example of, again, of it uh, kind of explaining um, not just what is happening, but perhaps what you have to do as well. Um, yeah, no, it's it's well done. Yeah. There are some great, um, some great uh, movie references, um, some game references, Manic Mine, uh, Take the Red Pill, of course, The Matrix. Um, hmm. Yeah, lots of great... Uh, Lots of great references in here. I know there was one more I, that I wanted to mention. Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. I, I was just going to say, I think that you can attribute a lot of this to the fact that the person who designed the game wasn't also the one who named them. Like, you got a fresh set of eyes on it, and uh, Terry Cavanaugh is like, go nuts for his friend. Like, just, just do whatever you want. And so he came up with a bunch of silly, ridiculous references <laughs> based off, you know, what the enemy sprites were like uh, or what, what the feel of the room is or, or what, whatever he felt at that given point in time. Mm -hmm. And, uh, yeah, I, I think that it only could have been this way if they separated the duties like that. Yes, I, I absolutely think so. There is such a range of room titles uh, that it's really mm. impressive. But... It's interesting to think then that these titles are from the perspective of somebody who did not design the game uh, himself. So hmm. some of the challenges uh, in this game. Now, uh, you mentioned it earlier, and actually you should probably just read this one yourself because this is a question that you asked me <laughs> when we were it putting was. it together. So uh, go ahead, this one here from Teacher Bloke 85 One thing I always ask when anyone mentions V is how long it took you to conquer doing things the hard way, a.k.a. Veni, Vidi, Vicky. <laughs> and you're absolutely correct. When, uh, when I asked you, when we were first discussing what game we should do, I'm like, 
we got to talk about Vinny Vidi Vicky. That's the that's the most famous part of the game. Uh, yes. So, uh, so what about you? Answer it first. Did did you um did you get this optional trinket? Okay. Now I actually can't remember. And the first time you asked me, um, what was I? I was walking. Uh, I think yeah. I think I was out walking, and mm. I thought you were talking about a different game for a second <laughs> because it had already been eh, two years or so since I'd played. Uh, v for myself so i'd forgotten about some of these uh really difficult things um mm -hmm. so maybe kind of refresh my memory refresh maybe the memory of some people listening or explain what uh what this whole thing is i would be absolutely delighted <laughs> to so Vinny Vidi vicky is absolutely fantastic every every aspect of this is brilliant so first of all you get that uh that room called the warning with all the checkpoints and then you get to the top of the Veni Vidi Vicky puzzle and you fall, you fall down five screens. And as you're falling down this narrow passage in the left, you can see this puzzle on the right and you reach the bottom of it. So pretty much every single puzzle in this game or challenge or is, is a single room puzzle. There are a couple that are two rooms, but Veni Vidi Vicky on first appearance appears to be a five room puzzle, which is absolutely insane. Because remember, there's no jumping, there's no safe spots in this puzzle at all. It's five screens. And uh, to add an extra bit of uh, spice to the taunting, you, you sit at the bottom of this five screen and you can see on the other side, there's a knee-high platform preventing you from reaching the trinket. You can't jump over it. There's no jump key. So what you have to do is you have to ascend through this five-level, five-screen puzzle, dodging spikes the entire <laughs> way with a lot of rapid mid-air movement, hit the platform at the top of this puzzle, and then descend through these five screens without hitting any spikes. And any death immediately resets you. I think there are many brilliant things about this, the way that it's a lot easier to ascend than descend because you've got more vision on what's coming next uh but my favorite thing about it is that platform at the top you cannot rest on it for more than a quarter of a second before it dissolves <laughs> because the very first time you get through this five screen puzzle you you're like oh my god i got all the way through so you want to pause and take a breath before you do it in reverse and then the platform crumbles underneath you and you die. <laughs> I would like to meet the person that that didn't happen to, because I'm pretty sure that happened <laughs> to all of us. It's um, it's a brilliant challenge, and it's completely optional as well. No one's forcing you to get through it. But uh, yeah, this is, <laughs> it's it's very tough. It's uh, it's it's wonderful. Did did you end up going back and beating it? Um, now that you've described it, I do remember the column with the spikes and the the um, the platform on the top. I don't remember if I completed it. Um, I will have to go and check, and maybe that's something I can include when I go ahead and promote this episode. But, uh, yeah, I remember the trinket being out of reach. Can't remember if I completed it or not. Uh, but one thing that sort of mystified me about V, and I want to ask you about this, uh, kind of sobering. Uh, the sad elephant. What's the deal with the <laughs> sad elephant? <laughs> Listen, man. I wish I knew. There's a there's a room in the overworld with a ma it's it's kind of hidden. It's like a secret, mm -hmm. and your reward for the secret is a giant neon elephant. Mm -hmm. 
Uh, it's unexplainable. Uh, no one, no one knows why it's there. I'm sure it's a metaphor for something, but you know, it's a nice surprise when you see it. And so, if I remember right, the sad elephant takes up four screens, right? It's large enough. It does. So yes. you can't. I mean, when you first encounter it, you're like, "What the heck is this?" And then you're exploring around. And you're like, "Oh, okay." So it's a sad elephant. Um, now, I took it as an analogy for the player who thinks they've discovered this immense, wonderful secret, and it turns out to just be a static image of this sad elephant. And so it's like, hi, you're a sad elephant. And I was like, I am actually, because I thought it would be something wonderful. Um, so I Honestly, don't know. A giant neon elephant is reward enough for me. I, I didn't mind finding the, the neon elephant. Oh yeah. At this point it's, it's uh it's famous, infamous, iconic, but um, yeah, when I discovered it, I, I didn't know much about V. It was recommended to me, um, but playing it, and yeah, when I first discovered that elephant, I was just like, okay, all right. I mean, I guess that's the kind of humor that this game has. And it's honestly, again, it's endearing. It's charming. So, um, just, just going back to the general challenge for a moment, mm -hmm. the, um, the trinkets that are scattered around the map, about half of them are hidden, and then the other half are like uh, extra difficult platforming challenges. And I just wanted to note that when I first played this game, I didn't get a lot of the trinkets. I found this game very, very hard. Like uh, that Veni Vidi Vicky challenge, the first time I completed it, which wasn't even on my first run through, I would say it took me like 40 minutes. Yeah. Like I spent 40 minutes going up and down. But I think that over the years we have been exposed to far more difficult takes on platformers in particular celeste i don't i don't know if you've tried the b-sides or some of the c-sides of celeste but that is a whole new level of difficulty like it, it takes it to an unreal standard <laughs> so when i played this game most recently and to be fair i have played this particular game a high number of times it took me six minutes to complete the um, the Veni Vidi Vicky challenge. And I think that our barometer for what makes a challenging platform game has maybe shifted. Mm. I think if you play this game today, its reputation as being insanely difficult, I don't I don't think you should be intimidated. I, I don't think that you should be scared away from this game because of its reputation of being difficult. Mm. It's challenging, sure, but it's not like impossible by any stretch of the imagination. Mm, interesting. And I, I think when it was recommended to me, uh, the person who did so said, just be forewarned, it's difficult. I usually always say, I grew up with NES hard platformers. <laughs> like, come on, it's all right. Um, I'm not saying like, oh, I'm the best at video games in the world, because mm. I'm not. Yeah, of there's course. A, there's a, especially two ones who come to recognize your video game diet. Um, mm -hmm. I do play a lot of platformers, but I don't play a lot of first-person shooters. I'm actually rubbish yeah. at first-person shooters. Um, I can't do I can't do anything. I get stuck. I get lost. I'm staring at uh, through my scope at a wall. Like I can't find the enemy. <laughs> um, so it's frustrating um, when I play with other people. So I I just tend not to. But at the same time, um, you know, I have a family member who. Um, isn't very good at platforming. He's wonderful at first-person shooters, um, mm -hmm. but his thing has been first-person shooters and not platformers. So just the other night, um, 
you know, recently we were watching uh, DuckTales on Disney Plus, one of my favorite shows mm-hmm. as a kid. Love it, love it, love it. And I was like, dude, have you ever played the DuckTales remaster? Because it's wonderful um, as a bit of platforming, you know, NES history, whatever. And they got the original voice actors and all this. I love that game. And so we were playing it, and, you know, I let him play it, and he was just dying and dying and dying. I was like, what the heck, man? But then I came to realize again that there are different things that people are accustomed to and different skill sets uh, that people have. So I think that hard will be one of those things. It's kind of hard to gauge, like, what is what is hard? Like, V is going to be easier for people like you and myself who are more accustomed to brutal platformers. But if mm. it's somebody who, say, doesn't play platformers very often or doesn't play video games very often, they're going to have a pretty hard time with V. Now, that said, I completely agree with you that I think that uh, the barometer for what is difficult in a platformer has shifted. Mm-hmm. It seems like part of the discussion about difficult games uh, to me is intolerable. There's a lot of discussion of, you know, like exclusivity and gatekeeping and all the th- stuff that that is culture talk that I, I, d- I don't much care for. I think that um, I kind of always do this in, in the middle of the podcast, like pull out a soapbox, but <laughs> I'm going to do it. I kind of think that uh, developers can develop whatever kind of game they want to. They have creative right to do that. Um, and if it doesn't appeal to a wide range of consumers, then they'll pay the price in not having people buy their game. So it's it's kind of a there's a balance there. But if people want to make a hard game, they can. If people want to make an easy game, they can. Uh, one of the harder games that I played recently was Cuphead. Did you play that one? I did. Um, I actually haven't finished it. Not not for any reason. I got about three quarters of the way through, mm-hmm. and then um, and then kind of stopped. I got up to I think it was the dragon yeah. boss fight. I'm like I'm gonna take a break. From yeah, that. <laughs> the dragon I think is one of the points in that game um, where people tend to stop for a little bit. Um, that's what mm-hmm. I did too. Um, ended up coming back and finishing it. But the dragon, I think, is one of those points. It's kind of like a halfway point. You're like, okay, I, this is just frustrating. <laughs> but um, what I want to say about tough games, uh, difficult games, is that I think there's a lot of hyperbole um, that happens just by the nature of our civilization, and the nature of how we talk um, you know, in this century, and the nature of the Internet, uh, hyperbole and sensationalism, captures more of an audience than uh more meted and um moderate discussion uh and it's just mm-hmm. how it works in i think in in everything extremism is just uh more newsworthy than <laughs> than some guy being like well i think it was all right but let me give you critical reasons for the next <laughs> two hours um it's just more interesting right in that regard now that said i think that's why people will say of games like v and cuphead and Sekiro is one that I've been talking a lot about recently that I haven't played yet, but I'd like to. Um, I don't have too much experience with from software games, but I think that a lot of people will say, oh, it's the hardest thing in the world. Oh, it will kill you. Oh, and all this and on and on and on because we're used to that kind of hyperbole. That was said to me when I picked up Cuphead, uh, and it turns out Cuphead is hard, but something that nobody told me was that um, there are there there's you can fight the bosses um, and they're not at the end of levels. 
you could just walk up to you know a boss icon on a map and just fight just the boss. I was saying that this game would be a lot harder if there was a level and then a boss at the end, and if you died on the boss, you'd have to restart the level. So the fact that the there's more checkpoints in that regard makes it much much easier to complete. So and then I think that's a deliberate design choice. Same thing with V. You know, if you cut out a lot of its um, checkpoints, the game would be way harder, um, and maybe even unpalatably so. So, um, but uh, yeah, I don't know what you think about that. That was kind of a tangent. No, I was just going to say, um, soapbox or no, I completely agree with you. Uh, difficulty is one of those things where I'm kind of conflicted, right? Because, you know, you do develop a sense of pride in your abilities with video games after playing them for a long time, right? It's like, I've played first-person shooter games forever, so I'm going to play them on the hardest difficulty, and I'm going to be like, wow, I'm the greatest. I finished this video game on a hard difficulty. And, you know, I I guess the thing is, yeah, there's nothing wrong with having a sense of pride in your abilities with video Mm -hmm. games. But I also do think it's a good idea for developers to try and make uh, games as accessible as possible. Mm -hmm. I think Celeste is like the shining example. There are a bunch of modifiers you can throw on, um, like infinite climbing and like taking no damage from spikes. So people who want to enjoy the experience still can. Mm -hmm. Um, That being said, I still think it's useful for us to have a discussion about the relative difficulty of this compared to modern day platformers. Mm -hmm. Um, Just talking about in reference to from software for a moment, one of the things that's interesting about Sekiro, and I think the reason it was kicking up such a big stink, is that all the from software games have a hidden difficulty mode option that I think a lot of people don't even realize is a difficulty mode thing. Mm. And that is that you can summon up to two people to help you play through the game and defeat the bosses. And that makes the game significantly easier because the AI isn't coded to deal with multiple opponents at once. So you can essentially sit back if you summon a couple of people to help you and they your your helpers can do the game for you essentially or they can you know be carrying most of the heavy load or the difficulty. Whereas Sekiro doesn't have that. Sekiro is notable for if you want to experience the game world and story, you pretty much have to... You know, you have to put your pedal to the metal and you have to get good. So, yeah, I don't know. I, at the end of all that, I don't know where I stand except that accessibility is good. V's checkpointing system is great. I think that if you took out the checkpoints per screen, it would be a far worse game. Um, yeah. Mm. Yeah, I think that, um, yeah, I agree with that. And uh, the thought that popped in my head is that difficulty and accessibility don't necessarily have to be mutually exclusive. Uh, there are mm-hmm. ways to design your game in which you can accomplish both. Don't have to, but you might pay your dues in, you know, not pushing off a lot of uh, a lot of titles. But then, hey, look, Sekiro won Game of the Year, so <laughs> like maybe <laughs> maybe we'll see a wave of pretenders um, that will do exactly what it did, but. Uh, I think that uh, accessibility is a good thing. I think that difficulty is a good thing. I was reminded of an article I, w- I read a while ago, so it's going to be paraphrased, um, mm-hmm. that said something like play games on the most difficult uh, setting that you can to get uh, the 
not best experience. So that wasn't the term that they used. They get the full experience of what the developers intended. Uh, and that was mm. capsulated in the, the headline. So I read it. Um, and their point essentially was um, that'll allow you to kind of have to rely on all of the features available to you. And I think it was particularly written in regard to um, Arkham Knight. Um, so it was saying something like, you know, Batman has so many abilities and you're just not going to be able to experience all of those abilities or have to string them all together uh, in the complete ways unless you play it on the most difficult setting. Um, now, not everybody's going to be able to do that, and that's fine. Um, I like that there are multiple settings on that game, but I thought it was an interesting idea at the very least. I don't know it's one that I completely subscribe to because I don't play games on the most difficult setting uh, ever <laughs> until, you know, like I've already played through normal and, and hard or something like that, but uh, that doesn't What, what it much. boils down to is, you know, different games mean different things to different people mm -hmm. and for me uh, I, I think the example i always go to is dark souls i'm a i'm a dark souls fanatic man if you ever do an episode on dark souls you gotta get me i <laughs> will <But> do <laughs> when, when i first started playing dark souls i was terrible at the game it was the first game i'd played at that time i i was really really bad uh but the process of dying and failing and retrying and slowly and slowly getting better was an intrinsic part of why I loved the game so much. And if I was able to get through easier, then I don't think I would have fallen in love with it the way I did. And I don't think I would have learned the lessons I did about failure being a part of of you know learning to become better at a video game dying isn't failure dying is just the next the next step in eventually conquering a challenge but that being said i can see that that experience isn't for everyone some people can maybe would would prefer and you know not everyone has the same set of abilities mm -hmm. i do so i don't want to say that the way I experienced the game was the only legitimate way to do so. So mm -hmm. in general, I prefer to have games be open and accessible. But at the same time, I do think that something is lost if you can overcome a game's challenges too easily when they're deliberately designed to be challenging you. Mm. And this is a beautiful thing about having a conversation on this subject because um, whenever it pops up, you kind of just see name-calling. You kind of say, well, you think that? You think that games should be difficult? Well, you're a gatekeeping exclusivist. Mm -hmm. Or, well, you think games should be easy? Well, you're a sissy and a pansy who, who you know, shouldn't even be playing video games. And it's just like, is this really all there is to this discussion? That you just have to pick a tribe and, and fight for it? That's it's very frustrating. It is frustrating yeah. because the truth, I think, is in, is in the middle. Um, you can have a variety of games that mean different things to different people and have different elements, and that's okay. It's okay to have a hard game. It's okay to have an accessible game. It's perhaps okayer to have a game that does both in a lot of uh, interesting and, and diverse ways. But I think that um, hopefully, you know, as we've entered a new decade, we can start to see more uh, balanced discussion on these things that doesn't have to boil down into... Um, well, either you're a gatekeeper or either you're a pansy, uh, you know, and it can just be, 
It could just be a discussion on these elements. Unfortunately, it's the just the nature of things like Twitter. Like like you said earlier, it's the hot takes that get the right. But that's why we have podcasts. Thank right? you. So that we can have these kinds of discussions. Exactly. And I think that's why we have blogs. I think that's why mm, forums. I don't know. I haven't been on a forum for years. But uh, <laughs> I think um, I think that having the conversation, taking the time and the space to have it is important. Um, Twitter does a lot to people mentally because um, you can't see the other person you're talking to and because, mm -hmm. you know, the character count is so low. So <laughs> sometimes you say the most cutting thing. And I know that because I've done that myself. So, uh, But moving on here, um, I wonder if you could tell us a bit about the story, the premise of V. I know it's not hugely involved, but just what is this game about? We've mentioned trinkets before. Um, and this spaceship, uh, what sort of is, uh, what would we expect narratively from this game? Narratively, it's incredibly simple. Uh, basically, you play uh, as Captain Viridian as you're moving through space, when all of a sudden uh, your ship enters a spatial disturbance of some kind, and everyone tries to escape through the teleporter. But in doing so, they get warped to all these different parts of this weird space station. And the space station has all these kind of weird physics distorting things. You've got like an infinite tower, you've got treadmills, you've got warp zone where there are levels wrapping. And your crew gets scattered to the winds. Your job as the captain is to rescue them all. Um, just more specifically, one of my favorite things about this game is the pure simplicity of the story. Every character in this game has exactly two facial expressions. <laughs> Reading either has a stupid wide grin on his face and he's joyous and happy, or that grin gets flipped upside down and he's, he's sad and despairing. <laughs> and his emotions just flip between those two states. There's absolutely nothing in between. Love it. And sometimes that simplicity... Uh, and the, just having a, a bare premise is good. Um, you know, I've seen some reviews that have knocked games for not having what we would consider, you know, narrative plot, plot and characters that develop and resolution and all of these things. But it's like you don't necessarily need that for a game. You know, you look at some of the most successful games ever made and some of them don't even have uh, proper stories in that regard. Tetris is one that comes to mind instantly. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's got even less story than V. But I think V is a story, or a game rather, that tells its story through its gameplay. And the premise is enough. You know, it gives you a goal, or a set of goals rather. Um, and so you know what to do, and you go on and you explore. So. Agreed. The emphasis is absolutely on the gameplay and the, um, I guess, the rapidly changing gameplay. You know, you blitz through this game super quickly. Uh, and. You know, every every 10 minutes you encounter a new mechanic. After 10 minutes has passed, you move on to the next one. And uh, as you rescue each person, they become happy and go back to the spaceship. And that's the entire story. It's, uh, it's a simple delight. And it, if I remember uh, correctly, did the other uh, crew members all have V names themselves? Uh, they do. And they're all... Um, uh, no, no, they don't all have V names, I don't think so. There's Victoria... Oh, wait, no, no, you're completely right, they do, because there's six of you on the spaceship. So that's your six your six crew members. And that's the six I, Vs, I know that yeah. They're all, 
that's a six Vs. I know that they're all named after colors and that the colors they're named after correspond to to the that color sprites in game except for Victoria who is depressed and therefore she's blue. Ah. <laughs> he, he couldn't think of a uh, a word for blue that started with V clearly. So there's Violet, Victoria, Vermilion, Vitellary, Verdigris and Viridian. Uh Verdigris yeah, I was looking these up. Verdigris is like... Some of them are like uh, plants that are... Ver Here we go. Verdigris is the common name for a green pigment ob obtained through the application of acetic acid to copper plates. Ah. So he had to stretch a bit to find something that corresponds. But uh, Verdigris is a teal-like color. Yeah, as, and uh, it looks like it's a combination yeah. of the words verde and, and gris from Spanish, uh, green and gray. But um, oh. yeah, it's like a bluish, greenish sort of thing. And vitellary was the other one. Yellow. Yeah, it's yellow. Um, but where do they get it from? There's some... Good save. There's some Japanese characters here. So maybe that's where it comes from. Vitellary is named after the biology term vitellary in Latin, vitellus, meaning the yolk of an egg. So that's where he got there the yellow go. from. <laughs> and that's... Exactly, yeah. <laughs> Which is quite... It's quite clever. Again, I if I had to pick... You know, a yellow word that started with <laughs> with a V, I never would have figured that out. I, I can just imagine Terry Kavanaugh, like, at home with the dictionary open, just going through <laughs> word to <laughs> word, going, oh, is this one going to do? No, not quite. And then he just keeps making his way down. He's like, yeah, this is close enough. <laughs> so speaking of Terry, um, you've got some experience uh, with Terry Kavanaugh's other games. Is that right? Absolutely. I, I think that... Largely because of this game, but just in general. Terry Kavanaugh is one of my favorite video game developers. He's like one of the people who I, I don't pre-order games very often, mm -hmm. but he's the sort of guy where I'll pre-order, I'll buy into games that are early access because I like the things he does and I trust him as a developer. So the game I've played the most outside of V is definitely Super Hexagon. Um, Super Hexagon is like a, it's like a rhythm game, but it's like an intense psychedelic rhythm game it's uh incredibly simple it makes v look incredibly complicated it's so simple you're just moving left and right trying to dodge obstacles in a in a hexagon but i have sunk an embarrassing number of hours into this game i've played 40 plus hours of super hexagon because it's the perfect game to play for two minutes before getting angry at your failure and stopping um more recently i've played a lot of dicey dungeons which I guess if you had to draw a comparison, it would be something like Slay the Spire. But really, it's just its own thing. It's a, it's a roguelike, dice-based RPG. It's, it's good fun. Wow. Uh, we had a question here from The Stone Creek. Why is this game so famous when Terry sees Don't Look Back as just as fun to play and has a deeply sad story to tell? Uh, I got the gist that... Um, Kavanaugh has created a range of games. He's he's made so many. I mean, he used a lot of them are just available free online. A lot of them are prototypes for the um for the new games he released mm -hmm. later. Uh, this one, the Don't Look Back game, I actually hadn't played it or even heard of it uh, prior to uh, this uh, the Stone Creek asking this question. So in preparation for this cast, I know that Terry Kavanaugh's games are usually really short. I actually played through it. Um, and what I will say about Don't Look Back 
is that while I think it's actually quite a beautiful game, it's very melancholic, it's got great atmosphere, it's got great music. I love the um, the aesthetic style of it as well. It's very simple, but it's somber and withdrawn. Mm. I unfortunately cannot agree that it's just as fun to play. I think gameplay-wise, it's very clunky and awkward, both in the platforming and the the shooting and the movement. I think it's possible that this could be turned into a into a more thoroughly well-made game, mm-hmm. but gameplay-wise, it very much feels like a flash game. Like I, I don't think it's a very impressive uh, game game, but I think that it is a beautiful game. And you're right that it, it's got a it's got a very interesting, beautiful story to mm. tell. So I wonder if they equated um, the telling of the story with the funness of the game. Um, I've noticed that there there are some folks that do that. Um, as for fun, absolutely. Uh, yeah. Fiery Paper Mario mentioned it's a pretty fun, challenging Metrovania, Metroidvania. Uh, Metroidvania is is something I I never thought of V as before. Uh, what do you think of that? Um, I'm sorry to be contrarian and disagree with Fiery <laughs> Paper. Hey, Mario, it happens. <laughs> but I got to say, I would not consider V a Metroidvania uh, at all. Uh, I think that there, it's 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 so annoying because Metroidvania is well to start with it's an incredibly vague term and mm-hmm. it's kind of been applied to many titles in the same way that people say games are just like Dark Souls but I cannot see V as being a Metroidvania because one of the defining things about those games is that you unlock new abilities which gain you access to uh, new areas that you weren't able to access before. And V's macro structure is that you have five different areas you can go to in any order. And each area, and once you've completed all areas, you move on to the final area. So it's open, like there, there are five different paths to take. But you can do them in any order and there's no restriction in the order in which you can do it. I think a pure platforming Metroidvania could exist with no combat. I don't think combat is like an intrinsic part of the genre, but I think mm-hmm. there do need to be, I think there needs to be something gating your progress in some meaningful way that forces you to discover an area, realize you can't get through it only to return to it later. And that could have been the case in V say where you had to find a crew member and then that crew member had a key. Um, yeah, or unlocked different sections of the map for yeah. you. I remember thinking the map was very much like a Metroidvania map, um, but without that element of locking and unlocking of, of sections and accumulation of different items and things like that. Yeah, so something um, like a Hollow Knight is, to me, one of the modern definitive Metroidvanias. Because as you go through the game, you continually unlock new abilities which open up pathways, which in some cases you didn't even know were pathways until you get the ability to circumnavigate that area. Hmm. And here's a final statement. This is from Blackbird Frost, who said, Yeah! Two exclamation points. was an awesome game with great music. Best $2 I ever spent. Laughing emoji. I love that so much because sometimes I'll, I'll go and I'll buy a game. Uh, sometimes I'll buy a game at launch, maybe a handful of times through the year. 
three or four times or so. Um, and sometimes I get depressed on spending so much money on a single game, mm -hmm. uh, 60 bucks and up, you know, sometimes. And here, you know, you could have a great experience, a shorter one, you know, but an unforgettable experience. I never forgot forgot V. I forgot elements of it, of course, but I never forgot the, <laughs> the overall sensation, the experience of playing the game. Mm. Uh, and it's super affordable. So that's one of, uh, you know, we've talked about a lot of indies over the course of this episode. But one of my absolute favorite things about indies is their affordability. Yep. Um, I love that I can find usually um, very focused, um, very personality driven and unique uh, gameplay experiences for so cheap. Yeah, I want to say, so V is a very short game. I reckon the first time you play it through, just, just as an average figure, I think it took me about three hours to play through. And nowadays I can blitz through the entire game in about an hour, maybe just under an hour, no problems. But, mm. and you know, that's what you'd expect, right? You're paying a lot less, it's a shorter experience. But V is like three hours of brilliance. Like, I don't think there's any, there's basically no downtime. And the game just continues to give you meaningful twists to the gameplay experience. So you never get bored. Uh, there's no mm. grinding in this game. There's no wasting your time. It's just three hours of gameplay brilliance, back to back, packed. So while it may seem it's like, oh yeah, I'm paying, you know, I'm paying $5 for a three hour game. I think three hours of like meaningful, brilliant gameplay is worth so much more than a 10 or 15 hour mediocre experience that a lot of the AAA studios tend to deliver, you know, it's short, yeah. but it's so punchy. Like it's just so, so much goodness in that. And short you could burst. say too, I mean, people shell out, <laughs> well, we're, we, you know, where I'm from, people shell out 15 bucks for a movie that's <laughs> two hours long. And that movie might not even be good at all. I've spent 15 bucks on a movie ticket and walked out and just been like, that movie was crap. I can't <laughs> believe I spent a full ticket, you know, price on that thing. Should have gone to matinee. Should have waited until it came out on a streaming service or mm -hmm. something. So, <laughs> but yeah, it's everybody's money. It depends on what kind of value they attach to it. Um, if you like, you know, the bigger experience, then maybe V won't appeal to you. We've kind of made the point through this episode too, that, uh, indies being focused, um, won't appeal to everyone. They don't have the same kind of mass appeal, but if you like the sound of V and you've never played it before, I highly recommend it. And I know Pat does too. Absolutely. This game is an absolute banger. It's like I said, I have played through this game, like six times over it's one of those comfort games to me you know like it only takes me an hour to play through nowadays and every time i start it i have to finish it it's just <laughs> it just makes me feel happy and there's very few games that give me that sort of warm nostalgic feeling nowadays and i shouldn't feel nostalgia for this game it's only nine years nine years ago but maybe it's just its attitude its feeling its bounciness uh it, it makes me happy when I play this game. I, I think I think it's a fantastic game on a technical level, but I think that emotionally I respond to its atmosphere as well. You know what? And I will never forget 
that it's an, an absolute banger is what she's <laughs> that's a great that's a great <laughs> bit of slang there uh and i i have to agree um so where can our listeners find you uh, thank you very much, Red. Uh, so you can find we. I'm Patrick Arthur of the Retrospectives podcast. Every fortnight, I host a podcast examining classic games through a modern lens um, with my co-host James Turlings. Uh, our website is rspodcast.net. So uh, we've got all of our content there, including all the articles I write. I like uh, writing articles for every single game that we do a, a podcast episode on i'm a couple of, ep- of articles behind but there's still 25 articles for your reading pleasure if you're interested in these classic video games our twitter is at retpodcast.net that's r-e-t podcast.net and if you'd like to send us something a bit more extensive our email is retrospectivespodcast at gmail.com well, thanks very much for being on this show. Uh, I appreciate, again, all your flexibility in, um, you know, the, the scheduling hoops that I forced you to jump through. <laughs> so, and being on the other side of the world, too. I mean, I'm, I'm just glad that we finally were able to sit down and have such an enjoyable conversation about uh, this game. That's so great. Dude, thank you so much for having me on. This this has been a lot of fun. I uh I know that we kind of rambled off topic a lot, but they were all they were all <laughs> fun discussions. And thank you so much for having me on your show, and I'd love to have you on um, on ours before too long. Absolutely, absolutely. And if there's one thing we do on this show, it's I it's rambling. <laughs> <laughs> it's 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 to phrase it differently, it's it's a contextual and culturally appropriate discussion. <laughs> <laughs> That's a very sophisticated way of putting it. Yeah, well, so, well, you know, put a put a fresh coat of paint on it. Episodes like this restore my faith in humanity. We can talk about difficult subjects in an accessible manner, not to mention a friendly manner, without name calling or ad hominem. And it's a beautiful thing when it happens. If you disagreed with anything on this episode, I would love to hear from you. You can leave a comment on the post for this episode on thewellreadmage.com or drop us a comment on the platform where you enjoy MageCast. Don't forget to visit our website, thewellreadmage.com, for more, and you can support the show by traveling to patreon.com forward slash thewellreadmage. If you're unable to financially support the show, please consider leaving us a review on platforms like iTunes and Podchaser, as that helps increase MageCast visibility, or just rate the show on whatever platform you listen to it on. This episode may be over, but the legend will live on, passed down by the dwarves, the elves, and the dragons. <laughs>